welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and returning to the show today is Dr. Sue Carter. She's a former director of the Kinsey Institute and a world-renowned scientist. She has published groundbreaking research into the important role that vasopressin and oxytocin play in early social development. Welcome. Thank, Thank you, Tom welcome. and Sue. Welcome back. And I want to reintroduce Sue briefly. Um, she's a distinguished university scientist, Rudy Professor Emeritus of Biology, and she has worked at the Kinsey Institute for how many years, Sue? Since five years. She was the director. And it's a um, study in human behavior, um, sexuality, but other human relationships. And we, um, Steve Portis is married to Sue. Steve Portis popularized the polyvagal theory. And what that theory did, it allowed, it explained why mammals evolved in a way that allowed human connection, because most animal species, the first thing is survival and defensiveness. But this nerve called the vagus nerve is very anti-inflammatory is connected to facial muscles and allows what he calls co-regulation. Well, part of this picture, and Sue and Steve were married, and we've joked about their breakfast conversations many times, but Sue brings a tremendous perspective on oxytocin, which is medical students who go, yeah, it's a love drug, that's lactation, whatever it is. But it turns out it's one of the older molecules in the body. It's really critical for human relationships. And what I'd like to talk about this session, and I really would encourage you to look at last week's podcast, is that she really talked about prairie voles and how oxytocin, I mean, prairie voles don't have human consciousness, they don't have language, yet they mate for life. And it's this drug molecule oxytocin that allows that to happen. So it's a very powerful drug. But what we want to talk about this time is in chronic pain, people get lonely. And it's a bi-directional problem because when you're lonely, you develop the same symptoms as chronic pain. Then in chronic pain, you become socially isolated. So you have a bi-directional relationship that's pretty deadly. So one of the bigger factors in solving chronic pain is actually reconnecting with family and friends. So I'd like to talk to Sue about this. And Sue, welcome back. And I have done, you, I've done enough talking here. Sue's a very good listener, by the way. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know how you do that. It's easy. How's that? You just stop talking. <laughs> how do you do that? <laughs> I'll tell you later. Okay. All right. Anyway, we have a round table discussion that now meets twice a month. We have scientists from all over the world. We're going into basic science and Sue, Sue can actually sit there and listen for the whole hour, which I just find stunning. <laughs> anyway, so Sue, um, we just briefly, just in one sentence, I'll just say that this concept of the prairie voles mating for life is unusual. They're just little, rep, little rodents and they don't have consciousness, but that oxytocin creates a very strong bond. And we do know that humans evolved with that social cooperation and strong bonds, allows them to cooperate to go from the bottom of the food chain to the very top. But we also know that lack of social connection is sort of deadly. So I'd like to um, actually ask you perspective because you, I think from you being on our study group that you actually learned a lot more about chronic pain than you knew before we started. So. We've learned a lot about oxytocin and you've learned a lot about chronic pain. So I'm just, I'm going to start with asking you your perspective of how has your perspective on chronic pain changed 
since you started participating in this group? Well, first, David, thank you for letting me be there. I initially didn't think this was a place I was going to be helpful. Um, but I, wanted, I wanted to learn. I'm fortunate I don't have chronic pain, but I've certainly had pain in my life. And I understand it at that level. But I, what I didn't recognize until I was exposed to the what we were calling chronic pain study group, but I believe you're now calling chronic disease, right. was exactly that. Pain was just one manifestation of a system that probably is based very heavily on inflammatory processes. So I've just written a paper that I sent to David, an essay, and hopefully it'll be on the web in about six months, it'll be open access. And what it talks about is the idea that uh, both oxytocin and social behavior arose as a solution to the problem of stress on uh, stress, the stress of life, the stress of living on Earth. You have to realize that Earth wasn't a very hospitable environment, but the first cells that managed to sort of pull the molecules together to become a cell they already had to deal with stress. And they did this in part through pro-inflammatory processes, meaning they used fire to burn out things that were bothering them. But fire is dangerous, right? You don't want to play with fire. And the fire solution was kept and we still have it and we call it inflammation or sometimes we'll talk about oxidation, meaning we're sort of rusting out our insides. But what's happening is that we have a serious problem of the potential for overinflammation. The solution has come in the form of many, many kinds of anti-inflammatories, but it appears that oxytocin may be one of the most powerful. And what oxytocin did is it tied us to sociality. So social behavior became one way we could feel safe. When we felt safe, we could then turn down the fire and be in a less highly uh, inflammatory state, okay? So it's, it's a kind of circle. It's not one directional. If there's a lot of inflammation, it's very hard to be social. Right. So it's, it's a system and it works based on this principle of dealing, one more point, with oxygen. So when Earth first formed, there was very little oxygen but there was something called the Cambrian explosion. And during that time, uh, blue-green algae started doing photosynthesis in large amounts and a huge amount of oxygen was formed. Our ancestors long before vertebrates, our, the first creatures on earth could deal 
with a low oxygen environment. But when you wanted to get to something bigger, especially something as big as a human or a mastodon or whatever, a whale, well, that's not a good example, sorry, because they do things differently. But you had this problem of too much oxygen. We all know, you know, if you're doing surgery on someone, you have to keep the oxygen in the physiological range. There's an anesthesiologist there working very hard at all times to keep body oxygen neither too low nor too high. That's right. why we can't all go live in hyperbaric chambers. It'd be right. nice. But right. we have, so oxytocin, when it came into the story, gave us a handy form of anti-inflammatory powerful enough to overcome those ancient molecules and didn't get rid of them. You don't want to get rid of them. If you destroy your immune system, you're also sick, right. but you want to avoid hyper, um, hyper immunity and oxytocin may be one of the ways that the body does this. And of course, you know, in COVID that the biggest problem as far as mortality is hyperinflammation. And yeah. we've discussed the possibility of using oxygen. So just to be clear, oxytocin is very powerfully anti-inflammatory. Right. And so the general flavor that's come out of this work group is that your human body has cues of safety where you can relax and your body's full of dopamine, um, serotonin, growth hormone, oxytocin, and really nice chemicals. Plus they have anti-inflammatory cytokines which are small communicating proteins and your body's metabolism or the rate that you consume energy is low, what we call anabolic. So you have to have that state in order to have reserves to deal with threat. And in threat, you're full of adrenaline, noradrenaline, cortisol, endorphins, histamines are all inflammatory. You also have, you also have inflammatory cytokines, your metabolism is elevated. And it's a sustained exposure to inflammation that causes chronic disease. What we now know, which has been in the literature for 30 years, which that's what I'm excited about your input along with Steve and the rest of the group is that this is the world that you have lived in for a long time, but somehow it has not come into clinical care that chronic inflammation is the common source of Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, cardiovascular disease, peripheral vascular disease, hypertension, obesity, and anxiety, depression, OCD, and bipolar. It's all the same stuff. So we had no idea. It's been a literature. This is not new news right. to you, but it's a huge news to us. So that's just fascinating putting your clinical cons, I mean, your basic science concepts into the clinical conversations because we're just blown away. Well, thank you, David. Yes, um, I didn't appreciate until I started hanging around with you, so-called pain doctors and, and chronic disease specialists, I really did not understand fully why the inflammatory hypothesis was so powerful. As you said, I knew about it. People have been selling anti-inflammatory foods and cosmetics and you know potions probably since the beginning of time. But it was only when I realized how it fit into this larger picture of life on earth for me at least, that all of this made sense. So as a, as a result of hanging around with 
David and of course DR, Clausen and other people, um, I began to realize that my field, which had already shown other people had shown that oxytocin was an anti-inflammatory, had not put that into the larger story of human health. We knew that social behavior was in there, just as you said earlier, I think that we know that sociality is so powerful in healing and in allowing us to feel safe but we didn't have this underlying link, this mechanism. Inflammation, as we know it now, at least as the current literature exists, seems like an extremely plausible bridge between oxytocin, sociality, and good health. Right, absolutely. It's all the same. Right, so going to the chronic pain really i just have to tell one story that now this very second makes sense so when i was a first year resident in spokane washington in internal medicine we had a residence clinic and one of my patients was about 80 years old reasonably healthy but had chronic lung disease not a lot of medications very nice guy and one christmas season he came into the hospital and within three days he passed away a respiratory failure and I'm going, and we tried everything. We didn't know what to do. And it turned out what had happened is that his son in Seattle had not invited him over for Christmas. Oh. And it never made any sense to me. How can this be? So we call all these things psychological and it's not. Your social environment has a direct impact on your body's physiology. Yeah. And as you know, Dr. Danchard of Texas has pointed out there's four factors that influence the body is um, optimism or hope, a sense of control, um, positive outlook, but also social connection is a big one. And the reason why is social connection is anti-inflammatory and lack of connection is inflammatory. And then your friend is, I don't I never, I never pronounce his name exactly. Dr. Sepio, is that his name? Out of Chicago, who wrote the book Loneliness? Cassiopo. <laughs> okay. Well, Cassiopo, I know he's passed away. And we wrote a phenomenal book called Loneliness. And it turns out that when you're socially isolated, you develop the same symptoms as chronic pain. It's the same thing. It's inflammatory. And we also found out that inflammation and elevated metabolism seems to be the common core of all chronic disease, all chronic disease, both mental and physical. It also turns out that any threat, whether it's mental or physical, creates the same inflammatory defensive response. But the mental threats are more of a problem because you can't escape your thoughts and emotions. And then I'm going to finish my little, I actually will try to start listening again, Sue. <laughs> You're doing a good job of, list, of listening to me this morning. <laughs> but I will say that there's a study that I'll send you out to Cigna. In 2018, Cigna did a huge study on 20,000 people. And it's known for a long time that being lonely or social isolation is a big problem. Turns out that 53% of Americans are socially isolated. And that the group that's the most isolated are the group in their 20s and early 30s, which is tragic. Then on top of that, they found they estimate that the impact on your health of being socially isolated is equivalent to smoking about 15 cigarettes per day. Mm. Now, that's not psychological. You have lack of connection. And what now we know with your work and others in your field is that oxytocin may be, be that maybe that secret link that I didn't know about before I started working with you, that oxytocin might be the mechanism that modulates this social isolation issue. Right, David, uh, these are powerful stories. 
And all of us live in a kind of um, vacillating between feeling lonely and feeling connected. Right. I don't think it's unusual or pathological, but you're absolutely right. If something puts you into a state where you feel sort of terminally isolated, where there's no one there for you, even if you're surrounded by people, and that's what John Cassiopo showed, it was not who was living alone, it was who felt they were alone. Right. That's, and that means it's in your head, but it doesn't mean it's just in your head, it's in your body. Right. So now there's some, I can't give you a quick fix, unfortunately. And this is a question I'm asked. Perhaps this most common question is, well, where can I get some oxytocin? Okay. I asked you that question. <laughs> yes. And the answer is that even if you could get it, if you took it alone, and if you were already feeling isolated, or if you had a history of trauma, and these are experiments have actually been done, you might feel worse. Now you say, how come? Why, why would this miraculous molecule make me feel worse? And in that last session that you and where you and I talked about this, I tried to begin to explain that oxytocin has an older sibling hormone name is called vasopressin. And the receptor that vasopressin normally goes to is one that triggers a lot of these emotions, anxiety, loneliness, vigilance. So even if you have extra oxytocin, if the vasopressin system has been tuned up by your life, your experiences, that oxytocin may act like vasopressin. Wow. So oxytocin, I never like to use the word drug when we talk about oxytocin because it isn't a very good drug. A good drug would always make you feel good. Okay, right. but it doesn't. And it's situational, it's adaptive, meaning it maybe it's not a great idea to form relationships under certain conditions. And your intuitive body says, wait a minute, you know, let's say you're in your 20s and you've got a, the right to go to a bar and go in there and you meet somebody, you better hope that your intuitive brain has the good sense to not bond to the first person you meet or interact with in a social setting. Um, this is why people used to partner kids with marriage, uh, arranged marriages, and some cultures still do, because the young nervous system is not, does not have that history, that information, that experience that teaches it which things are going to work and which ones are dangerous. And I don't know if that's why you, you're telling me that the most frequently lonely are the young, fairly young people, in the, at least in the Cigna survey, and I certainly would believe that. Um, but maybe it's not maladaptive for them to be careful. 
because they're at a point when they may make relationships that could last forever because that system sort of opens up when you're young and making snap judgments. It's the reason a lot of people have at least two marriages, okay? Right. One practice and one for real because the first marriage is often made based on circumstantial experiences. Um, and the second or later relationships we hope are based on more wisdom that comes from experience. So we're, it's good that we have this big brain, but it also keeps us awake at night. It's always trying to adjust and make the world just right when in fact the world is complicated and not always perfect. But there's one more thing I want to say about oxytocin though that has been done in rats that I've just learned this research about it and I find it amazing. Rats given oxytocin make more accurate determinations of threat and safety. Okay. They're actually better at it than if they don't have the oxytocin. So having that oxytocin does not necessarily make us gullible. It may in fact, if we give it a chance, make us more accurate in determining who we should partner with. We have a bit of a catch-22 here in that <clears throat> lack of social connection um, creates chronic pain. And so at that point, you have lack of oxytocin. But when you don't have the oxytocin, you don't really feel like making the social connections you need to make to heal. Yeah. And so I will tell you my own experience. I was in chronic pain, as you know, for 15 years. And the last five years, I was incredibly socially isolated. And the problem is you can be in a family, you can have people around you, but you don't know how to interact with them. So you can be in the midst of a whole group of people, your family, and people in chronic pain become very socially isolated because they push people away. They're angry, they're frustrated, they're reactive, and understandably so. So the paradox occurs, it makes it worse in that the people you need to support you, you're now pushing away. And as you know, when you're trapped by pain, you're angry and frustrated, but the essence of human relationships is awareness and vulnerability. But awareness and anger can exist in the same room at the same time. Okay. So paradoxically, what happens is you push your family away while you actually make things way worse from an inflammatory standpoint, and you actually physically feel the pain more because you sensitize your brain, you're inflamed, your nerve conductions increase. So you have all these physiological changes and so what's happened, it's not psychological. I mean, there's sensory input that's mental, but the actual process that makes the pain worse is physiological with oxytocin being a big part of that. Well, oxytocin in animals generally reduces pain. And you can show this at the level of the spinal cord. Mm -hmm. uh, there are studies that show this, that it down-regulates the pain response in a, a an animal preparation where the cortex has minimal input. Um, that said, remember the goal of life, there are two goals in life, survival and reproduction. Survival, the body will go into the survival mode if the other one doesn't seem to be working, if the social solution is not, does not seem to be available. 
and our society, the fact that we are wealthy in the sense that most of us can get our food without growing it, and we don't have to build our own house, puts us into a situation where sociality is more optional than it ever was in history. We saw um, a special on Australia recently, on Australia in the 1960s, uh, a group of Australian people living uh, in the desert. And they were living in sustenance, just hand to mouth, literally, and it, there'd been a drought. And it was not a good time, but um, they were still social. They were still going toward each other. They understood the absolute necessity of being with others. The ones who hadn't stayed with the group were dead. Right. Okay. And of course, you know, in, in cultures, if you want to punish somebody, you socially isolate them, which is a big deal. There's also a documentary I would strongly recommend looking at. It's a one-hour documentary called Happy. And the number one factor, the common bond with all these people that lived to be over 100 years old was social connection by far and away. Right. So life lifespans were longer, their <clears throat> happiness was higher. It did not matter in the socioeconomic status at all. And that's a very good illustration that you said. So Sue, I could talk to you for several hours. In fact, we'll talk about some other formats to talk in this because as the audience can tell, we barely, barely scratched the surface. So I'd like to take a couple minutes here to try to wrap this up in a way that might make some sense. Because as I'm talking, I have all these other thoughts exploding out of my head. So I'm going to say something and see if you can maybe improve on it where, okay, so oxytocin helped us evolve and thrive as human beings. We have a deep need for social connection. Oxytocin is anti-inflammatory and actually reverses the symptoms of chronic pain. Yet when you're in chronic pain, you're inflamed, angry, and frustrated, and you actually can't make the social connection that you need to heal. And so that's why we've learned with, you know, Dr. Les Aria's work and DR's work that you had to calm the inflammation down first. In other words, feel safe yourself so you can reach out to other people. Mm -hmm. And so you, Dr. Aria's put out very clearly that you actually can't connect other people more than you've connected to yourself. It's sort of a bi-directional street that way. So we know that social isolation, which is part of being in chronic pain, is a big problem and it's inflammatory, yet you don't have the energy to reach out and develop the social connection. So I did notice years ago in my practice that people, that part of healing was also people were seeing family and friends and the pain went way down, but you can't go to be really incredibly socially isolated to connection without somehow stimulating this production of oxytocin first. So it's a, it's a really a tricky street to get back on track. Well, good news, good news. Uh, under extreme stress, the body also puts out oxytocin. Okay. Both oxytocin and vasopressin. So if you're a person whose body is healthy, you will put out roughly equivalent amounts. If you've had a very serious trauma, what we found is that vasopressin was about twice as high as normal and oxytocin about half. So people going through SWAT training, you know, the, the first responders with most of whom in, in the study, this study was done by a Air Force Major, Alex Horn, working with me. And what Alex did was he went to 
he went out looking for extreme stress. And he found it quite easily by going to a clinical group that was treating PTSD. He found it by going to SWAT training. And he also went out and ran himself and became involved with ultramarathoners. Well, the ultramarathoners didn't actually show much stress at all. Remarkably, they just go out there and run, hmm. um, male and female, I might add. The SWAT team members were obviously experiencing stress. They were only allowed three hours sleep a night. They were, in some cases, in the face of live ammunition. This is serious stuff. And they bonded to each other. And at the end of this experience, they described their classmates, since it was a kind of a class, they were training to get SWAT certification, as they've defined themselves as as close to those people in the group as they were to their siblings or closer. Wow. So, but the people with PTSD, which is closer probably to the chronic stress model you're talking about, have, they are going to have to be, I think, nursed back to health, almost literally. Right. Nursed back by being exposed to safe others. And because they may not have the res reservoir, the resources to use this other older, probably older way of forming new relationships. So when you're young, and it used to be this way, I don't know what we're doing now with between COVID and everything else that's gone on in the world, um, young people were encouraged to play together. Right. To play sports, even if they were terrible sports, or play chess, or play musical instruments things that created a sense of group and a sense of accomplishment based on the group. It's right. possible that this Cigna finding is also reflecting the fact that people are less engaged. Some young people have not been engaged as much in social connection. Interesting. Well, I mean, there's a desperate need right now amongst people in their 20s and 30s about mental health issues. And again, this is a whole different conversation is that mental health is really the state of your body's physiology. Yes. And we don't, and so we tend to give sort of treatments that are sort of cognitive, but not really going after the unconscious brain to solve the problem. So the mental health issue is actually very solvable as you and I know but you have to come at it from a different physiological perspective, not just fixing it. So, yeah. Well, this, if you will, science that we're talking about is pretty new. Right. We didn't need this knowledge before because it was carried in healthy cultures. True. Now we're at a point where we've gone to a medical model rather than a natural model. I'm not talking natural foods. I'm talking about understanding kind of intuitively how the human body works. Um, and so we've intellectualized this and it's not as easy as we thought it was going to be. It's not a drug. Right. It's, it's a feedback system 
it has to change, it's dynamic, it's adaptive, it's, its fallback is primitive. Right. That's what scares us. We're very afraid of our primitive nature. Well, so you just brought up about two hours worth of questions I have, but we have to stop. <laughs> so this has been wonderful. Really, I just learned a, some really nice things today from my perspective to think about. So this has been really delightful, which I knew it would be. And I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Sue Carter, for being on the show today and for sharing more about the role that oxytocin plays in social connection and human health especially to lower inflammation and reduce pain. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to be back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www.thedocjourney.com. Thanks for listening today, and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.